sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the freedom of a young man in New York City who's been fighting for years uh, after he was wrongly incarcerated following uh, a police abuse. Uh, also going to be discussing the, the silence of the U.S. corporate-owned media as it concerns the war in Yemen. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls, but before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Yesterday, Enrique Tarrio, former leader of the violent right-wing gang The Proud Boys and four of his associates, were charged with seditious conspiracy for their role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol by them and Donald Trump's supporters. Reuters reports that federal prosecutors investigating the attack filed the new charges against Tario, Dominic Pozzola, Ethan Nordine, Joe Biggs, and Zachary Rell, according to court papers. All five have pleaded not guilty to other criminal charges related to the attack. The new incident accuses them of encouraging other Proud Boys to come to Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, raising money to buy bulletproof vests and other tactical gear and directing crowd members into the Capitol and assaulting police once the attack was underway. It said that Terrio received a document titled 1776 Returns that laid out plans to occupy buildings in the Capitol complex three days before the attack. The indictment says that even though Tario was ordered to stay out of Washington as a condition of his release after his conviction for burning Asbury United Methodist Church's Black Lives Matter sign a month prior to the January 6th attempted insurrection, he still returned to the city on January 5th and met with Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes in an underground parking garage to plan the attack on the Capitol. Eleven members of the Oath Keepers were charged in January with seditious conspiracy for allegedly playing a similar leadership role in the attack. Rhodes and other Oath Keepers have pleaded not guilty to the seditious conspiracy charges and are due to stand trial later this year. Three other members of the group have pleaded guilty. I wonder if Tario will do this time what he did in 2012 and inform on his fellow criminal conspirators, which got his sentence for his fraud conviction at the time reduced from 30 months to 16 months. I'm not sure if he'll be able to make such a deal this time, though, as seditious conspiracy, which is defined as attempting to overthrow, put down or to destroy by force the government of the United States, carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. And this is not the first time the seditious conspiracy charge was used against white supremacists in the U.S., believe it or not. In a case federal authorities brought in 1987 against leaders and members of the neo-Nazi group known as the Order, 14 alleged members or supporters were indicted with 10 facing seditious conspiracy charges. After a two-month trial, a jury acquitted all of the defendants.
As we're about to watch the televised political theater of the public hearing that the House Select Committee will air on the January 6th insurrection this week, which apparently will result in more hearings on various topics revealed from what I think is the pointless investigation into the January 6th attack, I hope people aren't getting their hopes up about any of the politicians involved being charged with anything criminal, being censured in any way or losing their jobs, just like I doubt that Tario and members of the Oath Keepers will be convicted of seditious conspiracy, and I don't think they'll face 20 years in prison, certainly. Because those people aren't like regular folks like you and me, like Khalif Browder, who was arrested in the spring of 2020 at 16 years old for allegedly stealing a backpack that he actually did not do. Browder spent more than 1,000 days on Rikers Island in jail waiting for a trial that never happened. During that time, he endured abuse from prison guards, inmates, was placed in solitary confinement for two years, was starved, where he attempted to end his life several times. Browder maintained his innocence throughout the beatings, the starvation, the torture, and rejected several plea deals because he said he was innocent. And because he was, the case against him was finally dropped three years after his arrest. And after his release, Browder tried to go on with his life, but damaged mentally from the physical torture he endured on Rikers Island, Khalif Browder finally succeeded in taking his life on January 6th, 2015. We live in a country where the Khalif Browders among us stay locked up for three years for allegedly stealing a backpack and never getting a trial, while the Enrique Tarios are released to house arrest or electronic monitoring for carrying out violent acts. And remember that Tarios Proud Boys physically assaulted black and other anti-fascist protesters in Washington, D.C. on several occasions, while Metropolitan Police Department cops stood by and watched or arrested their victims before they burned the Black Lives Matter sign at a black church a month before the January 6th insurrection. And then they're able to go on to plan to carry out even bigger violent attacks. We live in a country where the Trump-supporting politicians who held the doors open for the insurrectionists, who gave them floor plans, who acted as tour guides for them after and while they battled with police to force their way into the Capitol, are still sitting in their congressional offices, and the Democrats in charge of the so-called investigation into that day and everyone involved has barely said nary a word against them. The separate systems of justice in this country and their grossly unequal and deadly outcomes for us are no better highlighted than with the commemoration of the tragic death of Khalif Browder seven years ago yesterday, and the way so many poor and marginalized people are treated like him in the prison system still, and those people like Enrique Tarrio and those GOP congressmen and women who aided and abetted a federal crime who are still walking free and alive and happy today. Hashtag SOS America. Follow Luke Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Nation for lots of great content.
Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Amanda Yee, host of the Radio Free Amanda podcast. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Absolutely. And Amanda, we have seen all charges dropped against one Prakash Chorman, a young man uh, in New York City who, as a teenager, was kidnapped by New York police and uh, wrongfully convicted and spent uh, six years in Rikers Island, which, you know, is not a place fit for human beings, uh, let alone a a, a teenager. And uh, Prakash has been steadily organizing for his freedom all this time. And uh, I was hoping you could break down uh, not only the, the, the story of Prakash and what happened to him, but what the struggle to free him really looked like. Yeah. Um, let, let me just start by talking about the details of his case. Um, Prakash Sherman is a 22-year-old Guineas immigrant, immigrant from Queens. Um, when he was just 15 years old in late 2014, he was arrested by NYPD for the murder of his friend, Taquan Clark, who was killed during a botched robbery. So what NYPD did was they drove him around for several hours before finally taking him into the police station, um, and they did this to disorient him. And there they used all sorts of coercion tactics to force him into making this false confession for a murder that he never committed. So it's really important to note here that no physical or forensic evidence linked Prakash to the scene of the crime. Um, And the only evidence that they had was this ear witness testimony of the victim's then 70-year-old grandmother. Um, The grandmother, you know, claimed that she heard Prakash's voice at the scene of the crime. She didn't see him because... um, I think she was blindfolded um, and held hostage, but uh, she claimed to have heard his voice at the scene of the crime. So that really began Prakash's descent into the criminal justice system. And like you said, he spent the next six years incarcerated at Rikers in another jail fighting these charges. Um, he later rescinded his false his um, forced confession, but it was too late at that point. And so he spent six years at Rikers in another jail. Um, Four of those years were in pretrial detention. And in 2018, he was tried and convicted of felony murder, but that charge was later thrown out due to the judge refusing to allow an expert on false confessions to testify. So Prakash continued to sit in jail waiting on another trial. So throughout his time incarcerated, he always adamantly maintained his innocence, and he even refused a plea deal from the DA's office, which which would have drastically reduced his sentence. So Prakash, uh, from the time he was incarcerated, maintained his innocence, and he fought tirelessly to clear his name and fight these charges. Um, Despite limited resources, uh, Prakash managed to, while incarcerated, organize a group of supporters on the outside. And with the help of those supporters, uh, he managed to secure bail and release from jail. So he was released from Rikers in January of 2020. 
and had been up until yesterday on house arrest. Um, and throughout these past seven years, he's appeared for before a judge 98 times awaiting a fair trial. And throughout these years, he's managed to build um, like a large group of supporters. Um, every trial that he has, like I said, he's stood before a, a court judge 98 times. Every time the community organizes a rally in support of him. And, you know, this has been the result of tireless organizing. Um, we've done anything to uh, get people to know about him. You know, we've tirelessly fundraised, um, uh, talked to community members, phone bank petitions. Um, so, you know, the, the victory yesterday was the culmination of years and years of tireless organizing. Yeah. And I mean, while that is a victory, just the fact that he is on home confinement, um, had to do all of this organizing just to be able to get bail. Um, and now the charges are finally dropped against him, but but not before, I mean, he had an, a ridiculous number of court appearances and other literally hoops he had to jump through to get to this point. So, I mean, could you give us some detail on just the ridiculous uh, labyrinthine process that he had to go through to finally get these charges against him dropped? Yeah, yeah. So... Part of the strategy around this campaign revolves around community outreach and media outreach because, you know, the details, as you said, around this case were so egregious that we were always confident that if people just knew about Prakash, they would support his case. And um, the judge and the prosecution, you know, wanted to shut him up because they wanted to throw another brown kid in jail without consequence. And we weren't going to let him do that. Um uh, the judge and the prosecution always resented Prakash for speaking out about his case. Um, even when he was behind bars, Prakash would call media outlets and radio stations in hopes that you know someone would cover his case. And the judge and the prosecution felt really threatened by it. And they would do everything in their power to just shut him up. Um, and so he uh, managed to get a lot of press attention himself while he was in prison. Um, when he was out, you know, we took up some of that responsibility and tried to spread the word for him. Uh, spread the word for him. And so in a hearing earlier this year, um, the judge actually scolded him for what he called, uh, he accused Prakash of manipulating public opinion through social media and the press in order to, in, like what he accused him of, like he accused him of actually influencing the jury pool, trying to influence the jury pool by manipulating social media and the press. And so um the judge threatened to put a gag order on him if he didn't stop. Um, and, you know, the judge also ordered that day that Prakash could no longer give speeches at our rallies because um, every rally that uh, we had for him in front of the courthouse, he would always, you know, take a few minutes on the mic to thank everyone for being there, you know, give a short speech. 
But that day, because they felt so threatened, um, the judge ordered that Prakash could no longer give speeches at our rallies and that if he did so again, he would be remanded back to my, to Rikers. So through organizing, we had managed to escalate this case into a high profile one. And the judge and prosecution felt threatened because this was no longer a kid um, that they could just quietly, you know, lock up. And what really cleared him of his charges was a technicality that Prakash had learned of when he was uh, studying law books at Rikers. So um, yesterday, all the charges were dropped. And during that hearing, the assistant district attorney decided to drop five of the six charges based on a motion filed by the defense. And this was based on a technicality that because of Prakash's young age, uh, when the crime was committed, uh, that they could not uh, try Prakash in criminal court. They had to try Prakash in family court. And so rather than pursue this case through family court, uh, the district attorney decided to drop five of those six charges the remaining charge was for gun possession, and the uh, DA decided to drop that one too. And so this was uh, this was this was the long struggle of you know these technicalities and trying to move through this bureaucracy um, in order to get one person free. You know, one thing that Prakash uh, said that I'll always remember is he said the criminal justice system is a labyrinth, and I wake up every day trying to find my way out of here. And you know, this was a victory, but. Uh, you know, Prakash's case is in no way unique. You know, there are a ton of other stories like Prakash's, but they may not get the public support uh, or the media attention that they deserve. Um, and so this is, you know, this is one reason why this victory is so momentous. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just so gross, like what, what, happened here. I mean, here you have a young man wrongfully convicted as a teenager, which we know was part of a long history um, with the NYPD of uh, abusing and brutalizing and and even killing uh, uh, young people, people in general, and certainly in terms of uh, coercing confessions from young people from things that they didn't do and, and locking them up. I mean, if you look at the case of Khalif Browder or the Central Park Five, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, the list goes on and on of names known and unknown that have suffered at the hands of uh, not only the NYPD, but the court system in general. And to say that a person in that situation can't advocate for themselves and try to get some attention, which is crucially important, um, I I think says a lot about the character of uh, uh, the court system in this country. And so it just seems, Amanda, that that very kind of media attention and really the pressure that was uh, uh, built around uh, uh, Prakash's case, even though he very clearly was uh, putting forth a lot of effort on his own behalf. He also made it a point basically to develop a kind of movement around him uh, to struggle for his freedom. And it really just seems like that kind of pressure makes all the difference, which I think shows what can happen um, when we have that kind of organized effort that, you know, if we fight, we can win. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say that there was a lot of media. Uh, there was a lot of media coverage, and it was definitely escalating. I will say the turning point in this case was probably last month, when a reporter uncovered public records that the two investigators in Prakash's case, their names were Daniel Gallagher and Barry Brown, they had actually withheld cell phone record evidence in a separate case in 2015 that would have exonerated um, these two men. Um, so uh, basically, they sat on phone, uh, phone cell phone record evidence that gave the defendants alibis and, you know, made it clear that they weren't at the scene of the crime. So their withholding of this evidence led to the incarceration of these two defendants um, at Rikers Island for over two years, as well as a $2 million settlement paid out by the city. And there was an article that was released uh, last month about this. And these were the two investigators in Prakash's case and forced him into the false confession. Now, the DA's office never disclosed the details of this case to Prakash's attorney. And in addition to that, uh, one of the investigators actually led the interrogation of Chanel Lewis, a black man who was charged with a 2014 murder uh, of Karina Vetrano. And Chanel Lewis has since come out and said that the investigator coerced him into making a false confession for the crime. So, you know, as I said before, this is de the details of Prakash's case are in no way unique to Prakash's case. Um, and I also want to point out that, you know, this victory is the culmination of tireless fundraising, community outreach, media outreach, calling the DA's office and petitioning. And it was only through this organizing that created this mounting pressure, which forced the DA to dismiss Prakash's charges. And she would have, she didn't drop the charges out of the goodness of her heart or because she had any sort of sympathy for Prakash. She would have preferred to try him again, but she knew that the media attention and momentum was on our side. And if she continued with the trial, it would have stoked further outrage within the Queen's community and invited further public scrutiny. So it would have been political suicide on our part. So we did that. We forced her hand. We forced her into dismissing the charges. And that was the political decision she had to make in order to avoid even per further scrutiny and criticism. And, you know, because the trial would have just been a media disaster for her. So, um, you know, this is an important victory because it just shows how powerful we are if we unite in struggle. And no one should ever doubt the power of the people, the power of organizing. Absolutely. And I want to be sure to point out to our listeners that um, you co-authored uh, an article uh, about the case of uh, Prakash Chorman on peoplesdispatch.org that we encourage people to check out. Uh, you you co-authored it there with uh, Grace Woods. Yeah. And, you know, certainly I just feel like this is just one among many reminders that, uh, you know, what uh, capital, uh, excuse me, that what law enforcement and what the court systems under a capitalist system really look like. I mean, they so often operate with impunity and operate on the basis of racism and so many other things. And that, at least in my humble opinion, it will take a completely different system to really resolve it. But we thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. 
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the U.S. media has ignored the war and humanitarian crisis inside Yemen. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Aisha Juman, founder and president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. Aisha, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure to be with you again. Absolutely. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Aisha. And, you know, of course, uh, in the months following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, we've seen really breathless uh, uh, coverage, attention and uh, uh, analysis being paid to it um, by the mainstream media here in the United States. And uh, a lot of people have been pointing out, though, that there are a number of other conflicts that don't seem to get nearly uh, as much attention as the war in Ukraine and particularly some of these uh, conflicts and wars that have been going on for some time with uh, the war in Yemen, I think, being just one example. And I can't help but feel, Aisha, that this might be, you know, due to uh, the U.S.'s role in uh, supporting Saudi Arabia uh, in Yemen uh, in terms of uh, the stake that they feel they have there. And you recently co-authored an article about just this issue uh, in Truth Out with Donald A. Smith entitled Corporate Media Failed to Cover War in Yemen due to U.S. support for Saudi Arabia. So, Aisha, I was hoping you could break down uh, what this kind of uh, uh, media blind spot, if you will, uh, that uh, seems to be purposeful as it pertains to Yemen, what you think that's about and why you think these media platforms seem uh, uh, reluctant to really talk about this. You bring a very important point, and this is something I've been talking about since the beginning of the war. The Yemen war, a lot of people called it the silent war. I don't call it the silent war. I actually call it the blocked out war. The U.S. media is not impartial. They always, in my mind, uh, the majority of them actually follow the line or the total line of the U.S. government. So they will, uh, you know, be a megaphone for any issue the U.S. government wants to uh, blast so the world would hear about it. And they will also ignore completely or blackout wars or any issues that the U.S. government doesn't want anybody to know about. So that basically, in my mind, and having grown up in Yemen, we always looked at, you know, we never believed the media simply because we wanted to know who owned it. Uh, and who is in control of it. And so it's come to, you know, the U.S. where people say it's a free media. It's actually not a free media. People need to recognize that the media has always uh, towed the line of the U.S. government. Um, I will use that uh, war where the media um, were actually accompanying, accompanying the U.S. army and presenting the war from the perspective of the U.S. government. So that's really one of the main reasons of why the U.S. media has not covered um, the Yemen war as it should, and especially because the U.S. has participated actively in this war by supporting the Saudis, whether it's with logistics, uh, repair, or with weapons. Uh, Regardless who is the the president, we've seen that under Obama and then Trump, and now 
under Biden, despite Biden saying that he uh, was going to make the Saudi a prior state that it is. So th- these are some of the you know reasons why the U.S. media has not covered um, the war in Yemen. The other one, uh, which is very important, also the Saudi and the UAE, the main aggressors on the Yemeni people, have lobbyists and think tanks that work uh, on their behalf. And it's unfortunate because a lot of these people have blood in their hands when it comes to Yemen uh, because they continue to lobby for the U.S. engagement um, in the war in Yemen in support of the Saudi and the UAE. And if you look at the current um, uh, opinions and editorials regarding Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia, a lot of them make it sound like you know, the U.S. needs Saudi Arabia. And if the U.S. doesn't go to Saudi Arabia, the president doesn't go to Saudi Arabia, the U.S. is going to lose big time. When, in fact, that is absolutely not true. It's the Saudi that need the U.S. Uh, support. Um, and I actually, uh, this morning, was reading an article that appeared in 2020 in Reuters in which Trump basically told Saudis, if you didn't, don't do, as I say, I'm going to cut all support to you, especially to the war in Yemen. And they applied. And we all know that. So, um, again, you have people who are paid, uh, public relations firm, um, firms, you have people in uh, a lot of the think tanks. And I think it's extremely important for people when they write, especially from think tanks, to uh, declare who is funding them. And Aisha, I do wonder how much of the uh, continued willingness of uh, U.S. politicians to support the uh, U.S. involvement in this horrific war and completely ignore the uh, need to cover it in the media, how much of it is really related to the reliance that the U.S. government has on Saudi Arabia for oil? Actually, this is a myth uh, that our reliance uh, on oil is a myth. There was an article uh, that I think it, uh, recently that very uh, successfully explained that we really don't need any more uh, U.S. oil. And under Obama, especially with fracking, we, the U.S. became self-sufficient. And so this reliance on oil is just a smokescreen, to be honest. Uh, because the U.S. has enough oil and doesn't need uh, the the oil from the Saudis. And even the promise of the oil that they said that they're going to pump more, um, it's it's really nothing. Um, according to uh, J.P. Morgan analysis, it's like fighting a war with a, ru- a rubber bullet. So this... Uh, Again, this is one of the myths that people who are paid by the Saudi and Emiratis keep bombarding us in the media, in the U.S. media about that, oh, he has to do it because it's important for us. But that's actually not true. The other thing that people also need to recognize is that there are a lot more options now, especially with um, you know, energy uh, efficient and clean power that we have in the market that we didn't have in 1973 when the first oil embargo happened and made the U.S. pay attention that we really cannot uh, depend on foreign oil. Yeah. And, you know, in your uh, piece, uh, Aisha, you, you really put a fine point on some of 
really just the devastation. I mean, the catastrophic impact that this war has had on the people of Yemen, noting that according to the United Nations, there have been around 400,000 deaths as a result of this war with 16.2 million people uh, at the brink of starvation. And so, you know, this is why it's considered, you know, one of, if not, you know, the greatest humanitarian crisis happening uh, in the world right now. And I feel like another aspect of this more broadly is a U.S. foreign policy towards uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and what's really motivating the U.S.'s ongoing support. Because even if we look at those uh, stark statistics that I just notioned, this is even that I just mentioned, that even under a, a Joe Biden administration who claimed that, you know, he was going to put human rights at the forefront of his uh, uh, administration. Well, not only does that not seem to be the case, I mean, he also mentioned about making a, a Saudi Arabia like a quote unquote pariah, which I mean, I mean, to be honest, I, I didn't really take it that seriously, even when he was saying it, because I mean, to make Saudi Arabia a pariah would mean a real break from uh, the, the, the foreign policy of uh, just about every uh, American president of either ruling party going back some years. But even with that, uh, to say the very least, this idea of isolating or not even that really, but, you know, uh, treating Saudi Arabia as a pariah has simply uh, uh, not come to fruition. And this comes on what I believe is an upcoming trip uh, by Joe Biden to uh, meet with uh, uh, the, the, the royal government of Saudi Arabia. And so, Aisha, how do you see uh, a U.S. foreign policy towards Saudi Arabia uh, uh, factoring into this and how you think that uh, trickles down to, I mean, the, the, the broader um, uh, uh, crisis, frankly, that we're seeing uh, unfolding in Yemen? Yeah, I, I, like you said, I, it's been now we're in the eighth year of the war uh, on the Yemeni people and the U.S. government, regardless of who is in government, have continuously supported Saudi and, you know, and uh, resulting in catastrophic consequences for the Yemeni people. It's not just in the war, but also uh, through the blockade that, that just really destroyed the Yemen economy. So, you know, having done this for so many years, you wonder what is their motivation? Uh, because it's really very hard to think on a human scale or on even uh, just a logical scale. Why would they want to continue to do what they're doing? Uh, there is a, a piece also by... Um, at the Brookings Institute, in, in which, in, and I mentioned that in, in the article, that the U.S., uh, that Saudi Arabia imports 73% of their weapons come from the U.S. from from the U.S. So you do have a war industry that does not want to lose that lucrative market. So it's more on, I think, the war industry and the the arms sales that they sent to Saudi Arabia than it is uh, that we are dependent on their oil. Uh, You know, and we've heard uh, many uh, executives in the arm industry brag about how they are going to be continuously 
doing well because there are going to be wars and continuing wars in the Middle East and elsewhere. So this is one thing that we need to look at. The Saudis feel, especially Mohammed bin Salman, feels extremely emboldened. Uh, The fact that the president is going to visit. Actually, there were uh, a few articles between yesterday and today from Saudi uh, outlets saying that the reason the, the Biden postponed his visit is because uh, he hasn't met Saudi demands. So imagine this, the greatest nation in the world, the most powerful one, is being blackmailed by not just a dictator, but a criminal and a war criminal. Uh, that the CIA said he ordered the killing and dismembering of you know, Khashoggi. Um, so it, it, it just to think of, you know, outrage that you would expect uh, in the U.S. media and in the U.S. foreign policy for the Saudis to come out in their media and say, we have demands and the president hasn't met them and therefore we're not meeting him. So it's it, things just are in reverse right now. And I don't understand that. Uh, we know that the U.S. has a lot of strength and if they decide they can actually change everything. Um, Trump always threatened the Saudis. Anything he wanted, he would pick up the call, the phone and say, if you don't do this, we're not going to support you. And they always yielded to him. Now we have McCurrick, who is uh, the national security person in the White House, who's yielding to them. And he actually said in multiple reports that he is the one that these dictators call when they need help from the U.S. So you have someone who is weakened the U.S. president on the behalf of dictators and war criminals. And, and you know, I would expect the U.S. media to be outraged by this. Uh, and um, also our lawmakers. And we, I haven't heard anything from any of them. Yeah, and and on that note, Aisha, I, I I wanted to bring up how um, even within certain elements of the U.S. government, that there is some resistance to uh, uh, U.S. support to uh, Saudi Arabia in the war in Yemen. There have been attempts at different legislative moves that seem like they've been uh, defeated. I was hoping you could sort of uh, explain uh, some of that to us and what you see as uh, uh, what needs to be done uh, to really resolve this issue in terms of uh, a Washington ongoing a partnership with Riyadh and the suffering of the Yemen people that have come about as a result. So we were very happy. Uh, we worked very closely with uh, the Progressive Caucus in, in Congress and uh, both DeFazio, Representative DeFazio and Rep- Representative Jayapal from here, from Seattle, and uh, Representative Schiff uh, introduce a war, a Yemen war power resolution that would prohibit the U.S. from continuing the support of the Saudi-led war on Yemen. So we have right now over 60 representatives who have uh, signed this, and we are hoping for a companion uh, uh, legislation to be also introduced in the Senate by Senator Bernie Sanders. And so between now and when these two are voted on, we're hoping to mobilize people so they can call their senators and call their representatives to ask them to sign on and support the Yemen war power resolution that will end all support, all U.S. support to the Saudi-led war on Yemen. 
and so that's something we're very excited about. Uh, so I, I hope your listeners and everybody who really cares about, uh, you know, justice uh, is that they will call their representatives to ask that they support the war power resolution, the Yemen war power resolution that was just introduced. So that's a very good piece of legislation that we hope will pass. In the past, we've had uh, successful uh, passing by both the Senate and the House of a war power resolution. Unfortunately, Trump then uh, vetoed it. We hope that this time, if it passes both houses, that President Biden would not veto it. And this time that it would really mean the end of U.S. support um, to, to the Saudi-led aggression on Yemen. Let's hope that that absolutely does a result in that. And then if that does uh, occur, what is the likelihood of a pursuit of uh, war crimes, Um, uh, war crimes, prosecutions? Obviously, this has been a a horrific ongoing war crime and specific war crimes have been called out uh, in the Saudi-led airstrikes against Yemen. So, in lieu of uh, this legislation being passed, is there an effort or will there be future efforts to prosecute war crimes that have been committed and to highlight the U.S.'s involvement in these war crimes? Yes, actually, there have been a lot of reports on that. Just yesterday, the Washington Post uh, published on war crimes in Yemen by the Saudis documenting over 80 uh, war crimes that Uh, were committed against Yemeni people by the Saudi-led coalition, specifically Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. There is another one that also, uh, you know, it's a graphics where you click on a link and it shows you exactly what happened on that airstrikes. And the U.S. is complicit. There have been also Harvard uh, published in their law publication how the U.S. is complicit in the war crimes in Yemen. So we have a lot of people who have compiled uh, this information, including Human Rights Watch and including Amnesty. And the hope is that, yes, these are going to be presenting to, to the International Criminal Court for prosecution of everybody who is involved. And the U.S. government is definitely involved in that. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Aisha, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and the co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be with you. Thank you. 
Absolutely. And Chris, it's being reported that uh, the app for Tim Hortons, a Canadian coffee and and donut chain, uh, has violated uh, privacy laws in the way that they collected what's being described of vast amounts of uh, location data and other kinds of sensitive information. I mean, it's it's pretty wild that we're in a time where, you know, you can't even get coffee and donuts without having your you know location being tracked. But uh, sort of break down uh, what's happening here here and uh, what the issue is with the Tim Hortons app. Yeah, so this is a report that came out uh, this month from the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. Um, And on their website, they explain that uh, the app for Tim Hortons did violate Canadian privacy laws and collected what they call vast amounts of sensitive location data. Now, imagine this, you know, you install the Tim Hortons app on your phone or just imagine in the U.S., Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, Chipotle, whatever it is. um, And, you know, it asks you, can we track your location? You know, because you need to know which stores are nearby. You need to place your order or whatnot. Well, from there, what the Tim Hortons app was doing was actually tracking people whenever the whenever their phone was active, not just when the app was open. Um, and it was doing so to track when they went to or left a Tim Hortons location or one of the competitors. They actually say that one of the purposes of this was to, quote, analyze user trends. For example, whether users switch to other coffee chains. You know, so Tim Hortons, just to understand where their comp- where their customers were going if they were leaving Tim Hortons as a customer, uh, was tracking everyone's movement. Now, it's not just, as we know, you know, they're not just tracking when you're, you know, in a Starbucks versus a Tim Hortons. They're tracking you everywhere you go with this kind of access to your location data. So they could be tracking you on your way home, on your way to work, on your way to Anywhere else that you are going, including medical appointments, again, something that has been in the news and we have talked about, you know, many times on this show and the dangers of, you know, that kind of location tracking. So the Office uh, of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada made four recommend or made some recommendations uh, to Tim Hortons, including deleting any of the remaining data and directing third-party services that they had sold it to to do the same. Um, they have these three, you know, the, a couple other recommendations, and they say that Tim Hortons agreed to uh, implement those recommendations. But I think, you know, first of all, they sh- Tim Hortons should have been fined very seriously for this behavior, especially if they broke the law. Um, you know, I think some folks uh, in Canada are saying that Tim Hortons is such, a, you know, a Canadian institution. Um, that they, you know, they didn't want to find them and make an example out of them. I think that's, uh, you know, an interesting perspective on this. But there absolutely should have been some sort of penalty, especially when you consider that Tim Hortons was then reselling the data to uh, other companies, including American companies, who collect all this data and aggregate it and sell it to other companies. So, you know, it's possible that, for example, a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts or pick your favorite coffee chain could have been buying information about Canadian consumers uh, in order to do their own market research when people had no idea even that it was being uh, collected in the first place for those, those purposes. 
Yeah. And, you know, the fact that Tim Hortons was not uh, fined in any way is is bad enough. But the fact that the company they contracted with to do these uh, location service uh, services for their app was an American third party location service supplier. So, I mean, has there been any uh, in any any repercussions that that company will face for, you know, the very vague and permissive language that they allowed that created the situation for Tim Horton that, you know, created this problem in the first place? No, not at all. And we barely know who these companies are. We know who some of them are. We don't even know. And we don't have confirmation in the case of uh, Tim Hortons, which company or companies they've been selling to or they've been uh, contracting out to. They In the report, it's called a third-party service provider. Um, and, you know, the language in these recommendations that, uh, that this office and other security uh, authorities gave is actually very vague itself. It says direct third-party service providers to delete the remaining location data. Now, does directing them mean just telling them? Does it mean that there's any kind of follow-up to confirm that the information has been deleted and that anyone that they have sold it to has also deleted it? Is that even within the terms of service? Um, And how can a Canadian government agency enforce that for an American company? Uh, There are way too many questions, I think, that are outstanding about this deal. And, you know, it's something that happens just on a regular basis. You know, I, I don't think anyone was particularly surprised to see this story. I certainly wasn't. I'm sure many of our Listeners, you know, if you just say, hey, a company was tracking you on your phone everywhere you went, you know, I'm sure no one out there is particularly surprised or shocked by this. So, you know, it's a bigger question uh, about, you know, how can we get any kind of real regulation or justice in a global marketplace uh, where we have this situation that companies can just sell to, uh, you know, others in another country without telling the consumers, the people who are being affected here, what is even happening. Um, And those companies can just go resell all of that data over and over again. And I think, you know, we've talked in the past about, I believe it was, uh, it was either Google or Facebook, where they actually said, you know, we can't really redact or, you know, turn back this data. We don't know where it goes in our system uh, when you you know, look at a post when you go somewhere, when you do all these things, um, because just the way that the the uh, machine learning algorithms work, they take so many uh, things into consideration, so many data, you know, data points and activities into consideration. It's almost impossible to track the data or track the impact that it's had on uh, any particular recommendation or behavior. Yeah. And, you know, Chris, I was also looking at this piece concerning uh, TomTom, which is a a geolocation technology specialist, which uh, recently announced that they were improving their uh, uh, map making process. And I was hoping you could not only tell us more about TomTom, but I mean, what do you think the implications are of this announcement? Yeah, TomTom, you know, if folks remember when everyone used to have just a standalone GPS unit in their car before the smartphone, you know, I, I certainly had a few and I used to have a TomTom. Um, you know, they made those. Now they do mapping software. They still make uh, those GPS units for those who prefer them. Um, but they've updated and uh, advanced their mapping software. Um, and then they say in this press release, quote, regrettably, this will have an intended impact 
on approximately 500 employees in our MAPS unit, equivalent to around 10% of our top total global headcount. So regrettably, it's an intended impact uh, to fire 500 people because those people made technology that made this company more productive and more profitable. That's effectively what they're saying, is that your job these 500 employees, whether you directly worked on this service or you were support staff or whatever your position was, um, you have basically worked yourself out of a job because we this company, TomTom, has been able to, you know, or because you enabled TomTom to automate this. Um, I mean, automation is great. Automation is fantastic. I mean, making people's jobs and lives easier, great. These 500 folks, though, should be guaranteed employment. They should be relocated to another another you know part of the company or however it's done. Um, they should not be fired. 500 people being fired and let go from this company in order to just speak, in order to reduce headcount uh, because the company says they're not necessary. So, you know, really it, it's, we're seeing you know, what we've seen, you know, really since the industrialization, um, you know, boom, we've seen, you know, people's jobs being automated, taken over by machines. And the issue with that is not the machines. It is not the software. The issue is the capitalist system that we live in that would rather have automated software or robots or machines or whatever you want to say it is, uh, taking over these jobs and not caring about the people who are going to be impacted by them. Yeah. And, you know, switching gears just a little bit, but, you know, continuing on the idea of responsibility in uh, a capitalist uh, environment with technology, there was an interesting letter that was published by 1,500 computer scientists in support of what they call responsible fintech policy. And this is specifically geared toward the narrative being peddled around the crypto asset industry. So what is this letter and what do these 1,500 computer scientists say about uh, crypto asset industry and what they're telling uh, people who are facing a serious economic crises in a capitalist uh, society like this country. Yeah, this is a really great letter. People can go on the web to the website concerned.tech to read this letter, and I recommend you do that. And if you're in technology or finance, consider signing on to the letter. It's a, you know, these 1,500 are really, you know, uh, represented as well by the, the signatories, the initial signatories on this letter, which include folks like Tim Bray and Grady Booch and Bruce Schneider and Molly White and, you know, many, many others who are just critical in either the development of or, uh, the you know, the maintenance of and the advancement of the web as an open platform. And I think, you know, just seeing the names on this uh, really, really significant impact. This letter has been sent to a number of people in Congress, including uh, Maxine Waters, Ron Wyden, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Charles Schumer, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell. Um, and it is effectively you know, saying that the narrative of those who are promoting cryptocurrencies and blockchain in fintech, which is just, you know, financial technology, um, is that the narrative is false. And the narrative, they say, um, you know, is, is actually a dangerous one. Um, say, you know, that relying on blockchain, you know, does not actually provide the liberatory, uh, 
experience to either individuals or to markets that the proponents uh, say that it does. So, you know, in in this in this letter and in the in the work that they've been doing, these folks, you know, they didn't just pop up, you know, yesterday and say, we're going to write this letter. These folks have been analyzing, studying and writing on this. You know, they're effectively trying to say that, uh, you know, the U.S. government needs, really needs to crack down on cryptocurrency. It needs to take a functional approach to regulating and maintaining regulations on cryptocurrency as it does uh, other financial tools. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, honestly, I think really it was probably only a matter of time before we saw something like this happen around, you know, uh, cryptocurrency and things like that, uh, uh, particularly with the way that it's so often presented. I mean, it's been so interesting to see how the narrative around them has sort of shifted over time. And uh, I thought it was curious that it seemed like there was a period where we saw a lot of celebrities seemingly co-signing this or that cryptocurrency. And then when things uh, start to fall through, uh, the picture, I think, changes more than a bit. But we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, June 7, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to... Give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time today. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen to us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5. FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 320 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, um, (laughs) actor Matthew McConaughey uh, was giving some remarks this afternoon at the uh, White House 
uh, press conference, if you will, um, you know, basically talking about, uh, you know, gun control and things like that and discussing, of course, the recent tragic shooting um, in Uvalde, Texas, talking about the victims and pushing for legislation, saying, quote, we are in a window of opportunity right now that we have not been in before, a window where it seems like real change, real change can happen. And according to CNN politics, uh, McConaughey actually held meetings with lawmakers on Capitol Hill to discuss gun reform legislation earlier in the day. And I mean, (laughs) I, you know, I mean, look, I I don't doubt that he like really cares about this, but it's like we just had like a K-pop band talking about hate crimes at like the White House press briefing. And now like Matthew McConaughey is up there. So I don't know. Strange times. I don't know. I don't know if uh, the the White House thinks that celebrities are going to like boost Biden's approval ratings, but I just just kind of odd. But either way, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Esther Rivera, artist, author, independent journalist and the host and producer of On the Ground Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, which you can listen to both as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining us for having me, Sean and Jackie. Absolutely. And Esther, you know, it seems like we're in a time where a lot of the most pressing issues that we're facing are sort of uh, interrelated, interlocked, and impacting uh, uh, each other. I mean, I was just making mention of the uh, shooting at the school in Uvalde, And on a couple of different levels, uh, we've been seeing issues around um, access to journalists as it concerns a lot of these important issues. And so journalists in uh, Uvalde are claiming that police are trying to keep them uh, basically from doing their jobs, from actually being able to do uh, proper, thorough coverage of everything that has happened and uh, will happen. Uh, Nora Lopez, who's the executive editor of San Antonio Express News, also the president of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, uh, told Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, quote, none of us can ever recall being treated in such a manner and our job impeded in such a manner. Uh, News gathering is a constitutional right, so at some point this will cross into basic official oppression. And, you know, this is all happening within the context, of course, Esther, as really a a lot of scrutiny on uh, Uvalde following the shooting, particularly of the police who, uh, you know, to say the very least, did not intervene in a way uh, uh, that could have possibly stopped uh, the shooter that that slaughtered those children. And I think we should be keeping our eye on uh, uh, this sort of uh, uh, thing as it just seems like a clear attempt uh, frankly, to try to to skew the narrative and 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 an apparent sort of effort on behalf of elements of the state from keeping the the fullness of the true story from coming out. Exactly, and when you first mentioned how a lot of issues are interrelated, I thought back to some coverage we had on on the ground last week when you had young people here with the fight for Fridays for Future group. Uh, protesting outside the Supreme Court and then also marching to Senate office buildings. And they were intertwining the issues of guns, violence in schools. Many of them are either in high school or just out of high school. We're talking about young adults. They're growing up in this era of active shooter drills in schools. 
And, you know, that is not something that was a part of my schooling. I'm kind of in between that generation. I wasn't, you know, alive in the 50s when people had to get under their desks for, uh, you know, air raid drills or whatever. And now we know that would have just been totally useless, right? Because you can't escape nuclear detonation or explosion by getting under your desk, right? Um, and then I'm way before this generation where people are having to have active drills where they get used to the idea of having to hide or run from a shooter, uh, someone with a, an AK-47, you know, able to shoot rounds and rounds into their school. And so they were relating that issue to the issue of uh, uh, the danger to access to abortion and how, you know, some women are having abortions to save their lives. And then they were relating it to their primary issue, which is the, the climate and how you have these lawmakers, many in the pocket of fossil fuel industries or directly involved in fossil fuels like Joe Manchin, and how for them, uh, the climate and the climate catastrophe isn't some like far off thing. They're living in it now. They're looking at their lives uh, being, you know, altered, you know, permanently. And they don't even know if they'll be able to live out their lives. And this was what was so heartbreaking hearing from the young people, from gun violence to the uh, interruption of their own reproductive health rights to the climate. And uh, when you when you hear that and you hear that from this young generation, it's, it's really heartbreaking. But it also, you know, can stiffen our resolve to fight for a world not only for ourselves, but for them. And for, you know, for them to have a future. So um, I wanted to say that because you, you sparked my thought when you said uh, intertwining issues. But, uh, yeah, I'm really concerned about this, uh, what's happening to the journalists down in Uvalde. And the fact that it's not just the police, uh, you know, rough, rough uh, handling parents, keeping them away, uh, being more we being more violent against the parents that day of this tragic shooting than they were in, in, against the, the shooter and the murderer there, uh, terrorists inside the school. Um, but they're also kind of deputizing these bikers. So that segment that you mentioned on Democracy Now!, there was a video one of the journalists took of, of being basically intercepted by this group of bikers who aren't even police. Yeah, and who to tell them that, well, the, we're working with the police uh, and we're trying to create uh, safety and uh, privacy for the family. And none of those families asked for those bikers to keep, uh, keep away coverage of their tragedy. Uh, many of those families want people to know, the women, women who've been speaking out, who are mishandled by the police, they want people to know and not to forget this tragedy, and not to forget their children uh, who were murdered, and the officials in Texas are being very evasive about coming forward with all the information. So, no, these families want as much coverage as they can because they know the news cycle. They know that, that you know, reporters, corporate media, they're going to be on to the next story uh, next week if we don't keep up the pressure about this senseless violence 
the complicity of corporations and corporate media in in yeah, not bringing forth the real story about the guns and gun makers and the weaponry uh, corporations in this country. And, you know, Esther, that this issue about the um, uh, interference of uh, uh, police and, and folks, just random people who have been deputized, uh, not, not even, it seems, by the Uvalde police, but by all of these other uh, law enforcement agencies that have come or that have gone to Uvalde to, quote unquote, help the police. I'm really not sure, honestly, what the Uvalde Police Department needs help with other than um, providing cover for them allowing this to happen, like literally sitting outside of that school for an hour and allowing those children to be killed while they were uh, tackling parents, uh, 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 macing them, handcuffing them as parents were hearing the gunfire being shot at, uh, you know, fired in. In their uh, in the school where their children were, I honestly don't know what help they need from other law enforcement agencies other than to deputize random folks and to obstruct uh, freedom of the press. But a part of this um, issue with, uh, uh, you know, obstructing journalists in Uvalde is the fact that the community is, you know, 90 percent Latinx. And there has been a seemingly a concerted effort from the very beginning, even starting with the first press conference, to block access to Spanish language reporters, like literally not providing Spanish language uh, interpreters for Spanish media. And when it was requested, then first it was ignored. Then it was like the the next uh, news conference, I think it was like, well, yeah, maybe we, we will provide someone. But I mean, how much of this uh, obstruction of the media, do you think, is related to the fact that we are talking about a community of working class Latinx people on the border, and this is just all part and parcel of this, you know, American xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican kind of sentiment that has only gotten worse over the decades? I think it's very much connected I don't know if any of the stories that are coming out right now have mentioned this or made the connection, but just about a week before this tragedy happened, the Texas governor, Abbott, was speaking to media about how he wanted to challenge the federal rule uh, requiring him to educate uh, children from the undocumented community, people, uh, children. And if they were born here, they are American citizens. But he was he was uh, speaking to, uh, I think, some right-wing outlet and saying that he wanted to challenge the Supreme Court ruling that mandated that all children be educated here, regardless of their status. And when you add that fact to uh, the fact that they are there are undocumented people in Uvalde, uh, and they they have had to uh, be concerned about, you know, maybe even giving testimony or being a witness because we've had other, other instances in this country where undocumented people have helped to uh, in criminal investigations. They've given testimony. They've been witnesses. And then the 
they've been deported and they've been caught up in the immigration uh, system. So you have those two factors and you have the fact that of what you're mentioned, mentioning, that there's this active disrespect of the need to have uh, this news in Spanish language. I mean, uh, we know that uh, on the border in general, with this town being so close to the border, that there are all, there's all manner of repression, um, of disrespect of people's human rights, and we're probably not even getting the full picture of how much people live in fear there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's very real. And I mean, it's kind of a, a, a scary sort of uh, situation when you look at it. I mean, obviously the, the um, sort of initial incident, if you will, the shooting itself is terrifying on its face, but then the fallout that not only shows the, uh, uh, I'm not even sure what the word I want to use to describe. I mean, just I mean, I mean, the, I guess the uselessness of the police on the one hand, but then what appears to be this um, uh, a campaign to really try to uh, keep from a full narrative from really being established. I mean, it's hard not to get the feeling that, you know, uh, uh, the Uvalde police. And uh, whoever these uh, uh, deputized elements are, or at least very much the police, are dealing with, you know, some embarrassment uh, um, because of this. I mean, particularly when you look at how the police are upheld in the popular consciousness of people in the United States and how we're told that, you know, if the police brutalize or kill someone, well, that's just a part of the job. And then maybe if you complied, you you wouldn't get hurt. But, you know, we're, we're led to believe that we should let the police basically run roughshod over society because when it comes right down to it and, re- and it really counts, it's the police that's going to be there to save us. Well, we've seen time and again, as it pertains to mass shootings, that that's simply not the case. And Uvalde is not the first incident where we've seen a uh, police sort of uh, hang back in and not intervene while, you know, mass murder is 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 raging inside. And so a part of it almost seems, Esther, like trying to kind of protect the image of the police, uh, not just in Uvalde, but uh, in general, because I'm sure that uh, they're not you know, too keen on a situation where they have people basically turning on them or have public opinion turn uh, uh, against them, because that, of course, makes it more uh, uh, difficult for them to carry out this abuse in the name of the capitalist class, you know. Absolutely. I, I, I'm watching to see what will be the next steps, uh, what, will, what will happen next in terms of accountability uh, from the police and also officials. I've never seen uh, a crime this horrific happen, and there's almost an official hush uh, over the matter. And, you know, and and it's it's very disturbing. I mean, and and then to have the media, as we've discussed, uh, you know, tamped down, held back, uh, you know, for there to be this obvious effort to keep journalists from doing their jobs to basically interfere with the First Amendment, we really have to, um, you know, keep guard against what's happening there and really call it out and to, you know, be active agents around uh, speaking truth to power and and not let these people normalize this silencing of people. Like, uh, 
you know, because it's, it's almost as if we allow it this time, you know, like maybe it's been allowed in the past or if they've managed to shut people up, you know, this is this will be the norm going forward. Yeah, all of this in a country that brags about its so-called free press. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Esther Averam. And Esther, we've been discussing how um, elements of the state can collude to censor and suppress journalists. Well, that's definitely not just happening in the United States. Uh, We also see it uh, in Ukraine um, as it concerns coverage of uh, the ongoing war uh, uh, in that country. And uh, uh, it even turns out that reportedly there's a kind of a hit list or a blacklist for uh, dissenting journalism and dissenting um, narratives around the war in Ukraine. And I believe this is uh, centered around uh, a website called uh, The Peacekeeper that uh, seems to keep a kind of list uh, of all these types of journalists. And I was hoping you could tell us more um, about that, Esther, and how you see it factoring into this issue of propaganda uh, that we've been plagued with in the time since uh, the Ukraine war. Well, I... I know that actually even before the war, uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky, had basically shut down uh, many uh, press, media outlets, news organizations that he considered opposition to him, that were telling a different story than the one he wanted to tell, that his uh, far-right government wanted to tell, and also many of the news outlets that were uh, Russia. Russia, um, Russian language, language, uh, newspapers, uh, Russian um, news outlets that would be considered more uh, closer to the Russian speaking population there, uh, which we know has been under attack since 2014 after the U.S. backed coup in Kiev. And, but what I became aware of most recently uh, is uh, the website that you discussed. Uh, and so I think it's actually called Peacemaker, which is a chronic ah. and not not the right name it should have at all, right? But uh, apparently, uh, this this website is also known uh, as a kill a hit, kill list or a hit list. Uh, I know you're familiar with her journalist Eva Bartlett, uh, Canadian independent journalist, and I think she's based in Moscow now. But we know her from her. Uh, stellar reporting from Syria, really giving us a lot of the real facts on the ground that uh, were definitely in opposition or uh, told a totally different story than a lot of the U.S. and European corporate media was telling, you know, letting us know 
about the real story about the white helmets, for example, uh, that they were actually working alongside these terrorist organizations, not they weren't uh, trying to uh, render aid and do all these different things like like depicted in this uh, Netflix documentary, which disgracefully, I think, won an Oscar or something. So or nominated for one. So she uh, has been placed on this uh, website and she's been speaking out about it to uh, let people know that because of her reporting in Ukraine that is uh, opposing or uh, presenting a different viewpoint uh, than the corporate media in Ukraine, in uh, the United States, in Europe, she's been put on this hit list, so-called um, kill list in a way. And so that is how I became aware of this story. And unfortunately, I have to say, I, be- I also became aware of it because I, I'm on a listserv for uh, many sh- independent shows on the Pacifica Network, and it was shared on there for us to be concerned as journalists, as independent journalists. And there were a lot of people. I was I was shocked, actually. But, you know, people reveal themselves to be who they are, and they were actually uh, uh, putting down the story, saying it wasn't true, that it was just RT uh, reporting on this, as if something reported on outside of corporate media can't be true, right? And we know from, you know, looking at, coverage of Iraq, coverage of Syria, coverage of Libya, uh, you know, coverage of so many of these attacks, coverage of Afghanistan, we know that uh, we have to often go to independent media to get the real story about what's happening in these various conflicts uh, and wars and attacks by U.S., uh, U.S., United States, and, you know, its acolytes. So uh, I was really, really informed by this listserv that I need to actually respond to because some of the people responding in this way that was so shocking for a Pacifica uh, out, uh, listserv, you know, really need to understand what the truth is. So this is this is something happening there, and it's really an outgrowth, I think, of of not only what Zelensky has been doing all along in terms of shutting down media, jailing journalists, uh, torturing journalists. There are people in jail right now for being journalists in Ukraine. Uh, but also we have to acknowledge and uh, and remember and point out that a lot of these outlets and a lot of the initial coverage around spinning the, the Maidan coup came from uh, U.S.-funded media. So the National Endowment for Democracy and uh, similar groups are in there even now of funding uh, media so that they can continue to put out uh, propaganda while calling everything put out by Russia propaganda. Definitely. We've got a caller on the line here. Angela, tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, I'm calling about uh, Uvalde and about Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. No, I guess like most of your listeners, I was really shocked that this would happen with children because it seems like most of these shootings have been directed towards adults. So it's, it's just really, I don't know how to say it, but this is just really unbelievable in a sense. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that, Sean, you had mentioned earlier that you were wondering why Matthew McConaughey had come to D.C. You know, I think I read a couple of days ago that he's born in Uvalde. So I think it's probably, you know, 
something happens in your hometown, you probably take it a little harder. And he knows our, our politicians are starstruck, so they'll listen to him before they'll listen to any of us. Mm. You know what? I just looked that up while you said it, and that appears to be true. It appears that uh, Matthew McConaughey was uh, uh, born in Uvalde. Uh, and, you know, like I say, I'm sure that he is sort of uh, legitimately concerned about the situation. But even still, I feel like it's a uh, part of this uh, broader thing that we see about kind of avoiding the real core um, uh, uh, issues, the deep systemic sort of root of a lot of these things. And, you know, bringing in a celebrity, no matter how uh, sincere, I don't think is going to quite solve it. We have another caller on the line here. Allie, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Sean. Hi, Jack. And I wanted to say hello to your guest. Um, I'm glad that you guys are back. I actually didn't even know that you guys were back on the air. So, um, yeah, somebody um, who knows Jackie, um, she let me know that you guys, and I'm really glad that you guys are back. Um, yeah, I called because I wanted to make um, 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 a comment about what something that your guest um, earlier, her name is Aisha, had said. But before I, I make the comment about about um, what she said. I just wanted to say two things. One is um, I was one of those people uh, some years ago when Kali Browder got um, uh, committed suicide and we went to Queens and we really, really, some people got this uh, civil disobedience and got arrested because it was horrible what was happening at uh, Rockers Island. And it's still, you know, it's still happening. So I just wanted to say that. And to your guest that you have there right now, gee, um, I just uh, wanted to say that um, going underneath the desk and, you know, in the 19, uh, in the 1940s, how they used to run the, the 60s, uh, telling kids in the school to go underneath the desk and all that. I think that is a form, that was a form of propaganda. The same thing that they're doing right now here in the city, uh, making people so scared to, 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 because of crime, 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 and now people, they are afraid to even go on the subway. So I just wanted to put it out there. But my comment is about what uh, the, your earlier guest has said, Aisha. She said, one of you made a comment about um, the oil from Saudi Arabia, and she said that that is a myth, that the United States doesn't really need that oil. But I this morning I was listening to an interview on Telesur, a Spanish, and the guest said, um, uh, he was actually talking about how Biden is going to Saudi Arabia to uh, to meet the prince and and to talk about OPEC and all that. And he actually said, this is why he said, which he didn't mention, and I was actually surprised that she actually didn't say that. What United States is afraid is the Saudi Arabians uh, trading oil in a different currency than the dollar. The guests actually say, if that ever happens, the dollar will be a piece of paper that it would have any value. And this is something that I, you know, I know she's an expert and all, and I was surprised that she didn't mention that. But that's why that expert who was on Telesur said this morning, and I just wanted to make that comment. Thank you very much, and I'm glad that you guys are back. Well, thank you, Ali. I'm glad that you were able to find us again after we were the platform. And yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I remember it was being reported not long ago that uh, Saudi Arabia was at least, you know, considering accepting, you know, yuan instead of dollars and things like this. And so, you know, uh, I'm sure Biden and uh, the crown prince there have quite a bit to discuss. Uh, Jackie Lukman, your thoughts on our callers here? 
Yeah, you know, I I do wonder, you know, with the first caller, if they remember Columbine, if they remember Sandy Hook and, you know, other shootings, mass shootings where children were not just victims, but were targeted because they were in school. Um, You know, we 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 can't let these incidents slip from our collective memory. We have to continually uh, uh, remember uh, and continue to remember the the all victims uh, of gun violence. We are all victims of this carnage that this country was founded on, but particularly the younger victims, because certainly they didn't even get a chance to, to grow up and live to fix any of this. Right. They, they were subjected to the the result of a sickness that they didn't even get a chance to grow up to fix. And, and this was not this uh, issue in this uh, mass shooting in Uvalde uh, at Robb Elementary School was not the first. And sadly, it will not be the last because this society, the politicians that wield the power will not do what is necessary to make deep systemic changes in this society so that people's basic human rights are met and taken care of. That is the basic foundation bedrock uh, 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 problem that weaves all of these issues together. The society society is, is sick because it's an individualistic capitalist society that that grows off of exploitation and isolation of human beings. And I, you don't get anything other than this type of asocial behavior, antisocial behavior when you have a society such as that. And and to Ali, absolutely glad to hear from you also. And, and, you know, that the fact that even if it weren't true that, you know, oil is a part of, of this calculus that the U.S. government uh, um, is, is constantly weighing with Saudi Arabia, just the fact that that's the country that was actually the most deeply involved in the September 11 attacks. But they're the one country that has not been invaded, regime changed, bombed by the United States government. Not that I am calling for that for Saudi Arabia, but there has been nothing that this country, uh, this country's government has done to uh, hold that government accountable for its role in the attack that created the war on terror that was rained upon so many other countries in the world. So even if oil wasn't, uh, a, a big part of the calculus. Just just the idea that th- there's been no one in this government that has had the the spine to st- to say to Saudi Arabia, you know what, you never answered for that 9/11 thing. Now we're not we're not we're not doing any more business with you, cutting off ties, at, whether it's oil or it's it's whatever it is. That I think is the foundation of of this uh, 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 satanic relationship, uh, a devil's deal between the U.S. and and Saudi Arabia. I, I, that always sticks out in my mind, Sean. Is as like even if even if it wasn't like uh, you know we rely on them for oil. What is it? that Saudi Arabia has on the United States that the U.S. couldn't just turn around and go, we know you funded right. that whole operation. Yeah. And I mean, also the U.S.'s relationship with Saudi Arabia and how close it is 
again, just shows the hypocrisy of when the United States talks about how much it values democracy and human rights. I mean, you've got this. I mean, you're very cozy with like this unelected monarchy um, that's uh, quite reactionary. I mean, just the very opposite of uh, a democracy and, and the humanitarian crisis in war in Yemen, I think, is just one example of that. <clears throat> and also. You're talking about how we have to remember these incidents, Jackie. I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this uh, piece I was looking at in CNN that was saying it was published yesterday. It said over the weekend, um, there were 13 mass shootings over the weekend. And they define mass shootings um, as one where there's at least four victims, not including the shooter. So 13 mass shootings over the weekend, leaving more than a dozen people dead and 70 injured. So, I mean, it really is just a staggering sort of moment that we're in. But, Esther, I'm curious your thoughts on our callers here. Well, I, you know, I, I agree with Jackie about the, the, you know, not forgetting the earlier shootings involving children. And, I mean, I remember when Sandy Hook happened and no change, changes were made in gun laws. I mean, you know, forgive me, but, you know, growing up, you know, black in the United States, when I saw all those little white children murdered, babies murdered, and they could not, they would not change assault weapons laws here, I realized that it was not going to happen. You know, maybe there's some will to do something right now, but when that happened and those children were killed, I knew that I was living in a very dangerous place where where children, they wouldn't even uh, protect their own children, you know. So uh, that that's what I was thinking about with the first caller. Um, anyway, so that's that's that I'll leave it at that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Esther, I feel like and we've been discussing on the show about um, when we talk about the real root of the issue, I mean, you know, for me, it's the capitalist system itself out of which a lot of this emerges, which I think is why um, we see this ongoing refusal from those in power to, to really address what's going on. But it's this capitalist system that breeds all of this violence that, I mean, it fuels the uh, uh, alienation and exploitation and, you know, this competition and poverty and these skewed ideas about, you know, manhood and masculinity and things like this that are part and parcel of this issue. I mean, you know, under a different system, we could have a, a serious uh, network and serious funding for uh, conflict resolutions, social work, uh, violence interruption programs, all sorts of things. Also want to say that, you know, we, we should defend the right of self-determination and self-defense for oppressed people. And that's important to say because all uh, when we talk about um, gun reform or gun laws and stuff like that, somehow it always seems to mean in substance the further disarming of oppressed people and the further arming of the different police agencies and stuff like that. I mean, we got to get rid of these special legal protections for the arms industry. 
We need to ban the marketing uh, of weapons, I think, and personally, and uh, also in terms of removing corporate money from politics. Because, you know, when we look at groups like the NRA, this is a big part of how they're able to maintain such power. And, and many people have commented, because I think it's true, about how the arms industry um, uh, uh, factors into all of this. And, and for me, you know, I, I'm for, you know, sort of basic, like, common sense things like background checks and mental uh, uh, health checks. I mean, all of that is fine, but it's like not the answer. And some of these things are in place now and we see how they uh, sort of act. And we also, we live in a militarized state. We live in a violent armed state. I mean, just the number of police agencies in Washington, D.C. alone you know, I mean, depending on who you ask, you know, they might say that there's 20 or 30 some odd separate police agencies just in D.C., which ain't that big. If you've never been here, this is not a, a, a large town. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, with all of these things sort of uh, factoring into it, um, uh, uh, I just feel like it shows how it's this system that is breeding this, just like it's breeding all these other um, forms of suffering. And so ultimately, Esther, it really just seems like it's that system that has to be addressed and ultimately overturned if we're going to see an end to these uh, kinds of tragic events. And when you really think about the Second Amendment, um, just timing into what you were saying, it was not uh, applicable to enslaved Africans. It was not applicable to the indigenous people who were being slaughtered. So the whole idea of the Second Amendment and this, this right to bear arms was created, you know, as a, as a, in, was used in many ways, especially in, in, in the South, to terrorize and to further suppress the enslaved population, to terrorize and uh, commit genocide against the indigenous people here. And, you know, I mean, we know this country was founded on this type of slaughter and violence, and it, it's carried through to this day. And it, it's, it's to the point now where it's, it's causing the country to consume itself, you know, and it, the country cannot uh, protect itself from this, uh, this industry of violence, you know, that we export all around the world. And it, it's here, it's coming home here to just consume this country as well. Definitely, definitely feel like chickens coming home to roost. Well, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Esther Averam is here. And Esther, before we went to the break, you said something that I actually thought was pretty powerful. You're talking about how this country is sort of um, 
consuming itself or in reality is getting ate up by its own violence. Uh, the violence that lies at the root of uh, the very beginning of this country and also the endless oceans of violence that it has sent washing uh, uh, above the shores of all the different uh, nations across this globe. And now, uh, finally, inevitably, it's turning inward. And, and I don't think it's, and matter of fact, it's not even I think. I know it's not the first time that we've seen this kind of uh, a blowback on the U.S. because of the seeds that it has sown. But I think the fact that it's happening in a very particular moment where we see capitalism is in crisis, imperialism is in crisis, and so many different social issues that have been around for so long are really reaching a fever pitch, really reaching an inflection point on a, a, a number of levels to where these things are just uh, much more glaring than they once were. And so now these contradictions are hitting a little sharper than uh, maybe they once did. Now, they've always been there. They've always been present. And they've always manifested in a brutal and bloody way. But I think because of a number of different uh, uh, factors, all these different contradictions of the capitalist system have now just, you know, heated up. They're in a white heat in a way that uh, I think we haven't seen in some time. And as of now, I think people can feel like uh, like <laughs> almost like there's no way out or there's no solution. And, you know, we, we, we can't rely on the spontaneity of consciousness to really uh, uh, address these things. I think it's true that people uh, will be becoming more and more aware of the issues that are facing them. But that alone is not enough to organize them into action. There has to be a movement in place for that. But we've got a, another caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, great show, Jackie and Sean and your guests. I think I might be able to add a bit of clarification, uh, admitting that I'm not an economist, but it's not com you know complicated. Uh, the U.S. has entered into an agreement many years ago with Saudi Arabia to sell their oil, that is the Saudis, it would be denominated in U.S. dollars. And so um, most companies that want to sell this, or countries, they have to use dollars. And once they get the dollars, these countries, and mostly Saudi Arabia, they cannot spend the dollars in their own country because they don't have dollars for currency. So what do they do? They buy U.S. Treasury to the tune of billions. So it's critical that Saudi Arabia, even though they call Putin a killer, Mohammed bin Salman is the real killer for killing Khashoggi, but they won't touch him because if the Saudis threaten to sell their oil in uh, the Russian ruble or in a yuan, the dollar would crash and we would cease to be the world's currency reserve. I'll leave it at that, and I hope that helps the listeners. Thanks a lot, Keith. I do appreciate that. I mean, yeah, it's just it's just so clear that even though, in a way, I think that the U.S in a way, uh, has benefited from uh, uh, the, the war in Ukraine in a way that I think it planned for in terms of bringing some of the other imperialists, uh, pu pulling them kind of away from uh, Russia and more towards the camp of Washington. 
um, and at least for the moment, sort of lessening the contradictions uh, uh, among them. But we just we we see um, consequences in a number of ways. And I think economically is definitely one way that we've seen that. And we've discussed this um, in different ways on the show in terms of uh, different countries and governments, you know, uh, deciding whether, you know, they're going to uh, deal with Russia even after sanctions and being kicked off uh, of the SWIFT system. I mean, it seems like Washington kind of underestimated the value of Russia to different countries of the world in a number of different ways. And, you know, and here's what gets me, um, Esther. When you take a look back about how the U.S. and its officials have been operating and behaving, excuse me, behaving since the February um, invasion of Ukraine, it's almost as if Washington expected the governments of the world to completely abandon their own interests and the interest of their people just to join in the anti-Russia crusade with the U.S. And to say the very least, it just has not worked out that way. You know what I mean? And so uh, uh, it feels like there are some new dynamics that may be emerging. And while it will likely take some time for them to really come to fruition in a weird way, Esther, it feels like the U.S. uh, may be helping to dig its own grave as a world power. Absolutely. I mean, mean, what else could you say at this point, watching what we're seeing, this implosion, this this self-immolation. So when you said, uh, when you first started to talk and you talked about how people feel like there's no way out, I started thinking about how, you know, we can look to the, our brothers and sisters in the global South, you know, who are standing up and letting the U.S. know that, no, we are going to put uh, the benefits, the, the, the reality for our own people here first. You know, we're going to put our people first and not what you want. You know, when you watch Europe basically going along with the U.S. and destroying its own economy and people in the process, you realize how, I don't know what, what other word to use, but how sick you know, global imperialism is where there's this in in this so-called need to stay on top, to uh, be forever the colonial masters, the ones who subjugated the entire world for centuries under, you know, barbaric forms of colonialism and slavery to say, you know, to be on top and to defend, so-called defend Ukraine, we're going to basically destroy our own economies in the process, you really see how illogical and how cruel and, you know, senseless uh, U.S. imperialism is, how global imperialism is so senseless, right? And uh, I think that we can take an example from so many of our brothers and sisters in the global South who are saying, no, uh, we're going to put our people first. So if we want to look at Mexico and and the other countries who are not coming to the summit of the Americas, you know, which, you know, has barred Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Or you want to look at so many in the countries in Africa or in Asia who who abstain from just denouncing Russia and understanding that uh, how the U.S. had put Russia into a corner where it was either we put missiles on your border in Ukraine uh, or, you know, 
or or basically daring Russia to go to war, you know, and Russia did not take that first option. They did not bow down to have uh, advanced weapons on their borders, uh, aiming at all of their cities and infrastructure. So, you know, I think that we can take heart and we can uh, be instructed by these examples of people all around the world who are saying, no, uh, the the unipolar moment is over. You know, the American century is over. And we you have to uh, respect us, our sovereignty, our rights to live as human beings, not as, as chattel or, uh, you know, in, virtually enslaved people working for slave wages. And, you know, there's so many people here in this country uh, young people working at Starbucks, working at Amazon, uh, who uh, we see have that same mindset that, no, uh, we're not going to lose hope. We're going to you know, seize our power. We're going to make sure that in our lifetime, you know, we do all that we can uh, for our survival and not just survival, but for our people to thrive. You know, um, you know, these maniacs, I don't know whatever word what other word to use, they have us on the brink of nuclear war. You know, they keep making these bets and wages, I guess, between themselves that, you know, Putin uh, of Russia, the Russia military will not, uh, that they will blink, that they will uh, not have the, um, the strength to keep fighting for their own sovereignty, that they will wither in the face of these uh, threats to ha- place missiles in Ukraine, the, uh, these threats to destroy the economy. Um, but we know that since the war started, the ruble has only strengthened, right? And they have been forced since 2014, the U.S. coup in Maidan, to U.S. back coup in Maidan, to 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 rely on themselves to strengthen their own internal ability to be self-sufficient. And that's one main reason why they've been able to not only survive, but do well. And beyond the expectations of the U.S. uh, lawmakers here, the Biden administration. Um, And so it's almost like we have to, like, take that example, take the example of other countries that are saying, no, no. We want to build our own power and our own strength and capacity to defend ourselves against these vicious kinds of attacks. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously what you are talking about, Esther, is internationalism, something that, you know, we talk about all the time on this show. But it seems like we're having to reintroduce the concept to, you know, my generation of folks. I don't know where the the internationalist and certainly the uh, pan-Africanist revolutionary consciousness went. But it's like we have to reintroduce that uh, to people to get people reinvented into the idea of the importance of internationalism, not just like as as a cool aesthetic, but literally as something that is key and critical to our survival as people, as, as citizens of this planet. Right. Because I think a part of that is uh, is is decoupling our identity from this United States 
into uh, the identity of global citizens. And that would require us to understand how other people around the world live, what other people around the world think, and what they experience at the hands of this government that uh, we are, you know, that that we are actually, you know, propping up with our tax dollars and not questioning what what's being done, you know, in our name. So, I mean, how do you see uh, this moment in that struggle for renewing the the interest and the importance um, of internationalism in the U.S. with all of these different converging crises uh, going on at the same time? Well, I think that many of us, it's easy for many of us to be confused because when you talk about internationalism without some kind of grounding and some ed- kind of education about the anti-colonial movement, the anti-slavery movement, the the rise of socialist economies, uh, the post-colonial mo- moment. I think movements. I think that when people look at you know black internationalism, they see someone like Lloyd Austin, right, who is uh, Secretary of Defense. You know, uh, they, and you have so many of the blackness leadership class. I'll use that term. I know uh, comes from Black Agenda Report. Uh, uh, hyping up these types of black faces in high places as if that is black internationalism. Uh, when, you know, Kamala Harris is going to Latin America, giving them a tongue lashing about like, you know, uh, you have to stay where you are. Don't come to the U S don't come, you know, and people may think that that is black internationalism, that we're going to be down with the imperialist project and become black imperialists, you know, African people who are imperialists. And that's not it. What we're talking about is the, uh, you know, leaning into our history of struggle against uh, uh, slavery, colonialism, post-colonialism. And we're very much a part of that here. You know, we're not separate from that struggle here in the United States. And Cuba is not separate from that struggle. Uh, Nicaragua is not separate from that struggle. You know, Venezuela is not separate. And that's why they're targeting these uh, budding, these socialist countries that are trying to uh, uh, strike out on their own path to have a socialist economy that is not uh, under the boot of U.S. capitalism or imperialism uh, because because of that history and because we know that only by having a socialist economy can we uh, feed all our people, take care of our people, uh, make sure our people have health care, that we have clean water. You know, Flint doesn't still have clean water, right? Uh, that we can have uh, a, a world that we can all live in. And, you know, that's why they're being attacked. And, and that's why we have to keep fighting. That's a fact. That's a fact. It's true that we need a new system at every level, every day. We're seeing how uh, this capitalist system is one that uh, breeds death and we need a system that uh, foments life. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We want to thank Esther Revere so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.